This is the Personal Finance Show. Hi, I'm Bo Humphreys, and this is The Personal Finance Show. John Kalos worked in a bank for a long time. Over the years, he realized that the bank's mandate was to sell products first, and helping people took a back seat to this mandate. He found himself in a situation where he was being told he had to sell investment products that weren't right for his clients. John had had enough and decided he could be a financial planner on his own, without the bank forcing sales quotas on him. He could offer his clients the right products for them, based on their individual life situation and goals. Once out on his own, he could so clearly see that people were still being taken advantage of by the banks, so he created his podcast, Confessions of an Ex-Banker, which strives to inform Canadians about the important financial stuff that the banks won't tell you, because it's not going to help them sell more products. John is very passionate about actually helping people and not just selling them a product to get a commission and then hanging them out to dry, which is unfortunately what many financial professionals have done in the past, leading to mistrust and skepticism of everyone in the personal finance business. John joined me from Montreal, Quebec, to tell his personal finance story and how he's trying to help people achieve their financial goals. I tell this to my kids all the time. My kids are 13 and 11 now. Oh, nice. Uh, so my, my, first, my first job was delivering newspapers and uh, the newspaper was the Montreal Star, which doesn't exist anymore. It hasn't existed in 30 years. No, it doesn't sound familiar. <laughs> yeah, that's right. So, so I, and I was, eight, I was eight or nine years old, and I had a route of 12 newspapers. Well, I remember my first week, if it, was it the first week or the first couple of weeks, I, I accumulated $5.18. Tips back then were a nickel, a dime, you know, some sure, pennies, sure. stuff like that, right? So, and then when I, when I got the money, it was all in cash. I took it to the bank. And I opened up a bank account on my own. You just put the money in. <laughs> well, At wait, least... wait. Why would you just who who would have given you this idea? Just you're like your parents would have talked to you previously, or you just decided? Not at all. I just decided. I knew what bank accounts were, and back then you didn't. You, you, all you did was sign a, a little card, and your bank account is ready in like five minutes. Now sure. it can take three days. Yeah, that's right. But that was my, that's my first experience with money. I got so thrilled that I, I had. All this change and a couple of paper bills, and I was I was freaking out. So, obviously, the industry that I'm in right now, um, I had a passion for money. From yeah, a very early, young. you just wanted to hold on to it. You just wanted to keep this money. You you would like, oh, I'm so excited about this. I wanna I wanna save it. I wanna hold on to it. I wanted to see the book that the bank gave me with the printout showing how much money I have, and and I wanted to see it grow. So I, yeah. I was. I, I wasn't spending money back then. I was nine years old. You know, I bought a chocolate bar for twenty five cents or something. But uh, you didn't. Did you keep any? You didn't keep any of it for yourself, though. Did you? Uh... No, not at all. That's mm. why I, I remember the number five dollars and twelve cents. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, did you continue to do that then? Like, you know, every what week or month or whenever you were getting paid. It was. Uh, I, I I did it for about three months, and it were all in, in the summer months, obviously. And then and then that that summer we actually packed up and moved to Greece. 
Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah. So, uh, so that's the next uh, portion of my life. Yes. Yeah, so wait. How old were you then when you moved to Greece? I was nine years old. Wow. So you, okay. So you were born in Quebec. Correct. Yeah. Okay. So and and your your parents are Greek. That's right. They were. They came in the sixties. They came in the sixties. So so yep. why why move back uh, after nine years? I'll tell you what. Uh, as a matter of fact, we moved back. Uh, five years before as well. Oh. Uh, so here's what happens with Greek immigrants, and uh, you know maybe it's not everybody, but generally speaking, mm-hmm. when they came, when they came, they wanted to come here, make some money so they can send send it back to their parents who were poor in Greece, right? And then they come back. So oh, we tried. Okay. We tried that. My my mom was obsessed with going back to Greece. On the other hand, the second time when we went back, after nine months, we came back to Montreal. Uh, and, and it was my mom who said, I can't live here. Like she got, she got Canadianized, let's say. All right. Okay. So she couldn't handle being back in Greece. What was it about Canada that, uh, do you remember that drew, drew her back? Yeah. Yeah. The fact that we're civilized. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, things, things are a little more rough around the edges. Okay. In Greece, it still is like that. That's, that's society. And when I say rough around the edges, I mean, like when the bus comes, right, everybody's just hurls in. They don't wait up in, in line the way we do. When when I'm at the bakery shop and I'm waiting for bread, you know, I won't be served because I'm a kid and he'll serve all the other people that come in after me. So this is what I mean by. So know. a little a little more chaotic in terms of yeah, society. Yeah, that's right. And I, I, I blame it on the weather, on the heat. Sure, sure. <laughs> Yeah, I, I get it. So you're you're back in uh, in Canada just after nine months. Then, and that's right. What well, uh, did you do anything in uh, what you what would you have done in uh, Greece for that time? Was the idea where you you would go to school there again? And I was in school uh, for in grade five. Uh, yeah, grade grade four actually. So I was in school, and um, we obviously I finished off the school year, and then after at near the end of summers when we came back. So. Um, so it was one 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 year of school that that, that happened over there. And so I you're just, you're bi, you're bilingual then, I imagine. Yeah, I'm, yeah, trilingual. Trilingual, uh, fr- yeah. French as well then. Évidemment, oui. Moi, moi aussi, je pratique pas beaucoup. No. Okay, oui, et je 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 peux voir que tu pratiques pas beaucoup. Je manque beaucoup de mots. C'est ça. Et ton accent, ton accent. Mon accent, oui. C'est pas québécois. Non, c'est pas québécois. C'est euh, le nord de l'Ontario. Voilà. <laughs> voilà, voilà. So you, you, uh, so you speak in Greek, you speak in French, you speak in English. But uh, if we can go back to uh, um, coming to Canada from from Greece, so you know, just to talk about personal finance, that then in Greece. Uh, it's not easy to make uh, money to make a living then? That's correct. I mean, personal finance. In Greece back then, nobody had a cash register. It was all uh, so very, you know, very behind the curve, and mm. you know, no, nobody did their taxes. There was there wasn't any income taxes, if I'm not mistaken, in the late '70s. Okay, and people would keep money in their drawer. So the the idea of personal financial planning or personal finances, uh-uh. you make money, you spend it. You make money, you spend it. You live in the house that your parents had, you know, or the, you know, three generations without any any property taxes or anything like that so life was you know a lot more simple let's say mm-hmm. and i mean i i, I don't want to get into politics or, or anything because i don't really know a lot about this but did this kind of all lead to the the demise of the greek uh, financial system 
Y- yes, it has, um, and which happened again in 2009. Yeah, that's what I'm referring to, yeah. And, and what happened, what happened in Greece, basically, Greece was a microcosm of what the, the whole world is suffering, okay, mm-hmm. which, is, which is spending more than you make. And the, uh, government, yeah. the government did it, uh, the people did it. Those are the basics of what happened in 2009. It's funny how, how basic concepts uh, can even be lost by an entire uh, country, an entire like, organization government, right? Certainly. And, and you know what? It has been lost by every government, right? Mm. Because every, almost every country is in a deficit situation. That's and they have true, a large isn't debt. it? Yeah, wow. So, you know, some people confuse deficit and debt. Deficit is, is the negative that you have over one year. The debt is the accumulation of all those negatives. And so, uh, yeah, so if there's a bunch of deficits in a row or, or the continuous debt and there's no plan to get out of it, then that's an issue. A deficit is just, you know, we will make it up in the next year, hopefully. Yeah, which we never do. Yeah. <laughs> right? Does I mean, anyone? Yeah, I guess not. So you came back to Canada. You heading into high school. Is that right? I, I head into, into grade six. Great. So Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, no, so not quite. No, I'm sorry, grade five. Basically, I went to five different elementary schools. When I was in elementary school. Wow! Wow! So there was a lot of jumping, jumping around. So were you able to get some more side jobs when you got back and continue to make your your money? No, the first job that I had after then was, and, and I was heading into high school, so I, I didn't even consider going back on the paper route. Uh, sure, sure. You know, role. So I, I got into high school, and then my first job after that was babysitting at fourteen. Okay, okay. And how do you remember how much people made uh, at that time? Uh, I was making, I think, for three hours when I was doing it, maybe three days or tw- yeah, three days a week. I was getting twenty dollars for those three days. Okay, that doesn't sound so bad for some reason. I don't know. <laughs> uh, for a kid that is, you know, fourteen going on fifteen, you know, having twenty bucks in their wallet. Are you kidding me? That was great. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I was so, thrilled. But now, so now you're a teenager. Are are you still like uh, loving the interest growing in the bank account uh, like you were when you were a little younger, or are you spending it? And you know what? No, I, I think I was somewhere in the middle where I was saving some and I was spending some. Yeah, well, I mean, at least you kept some of it. And so now you're going through high school, you're babysitting. Maybe did you get some kind of a, a retail job at some point or any other jobs? No. I, when I finished high school, uh, which was uh, 17, I was 17, I actually had a job or I, I got a job at a hospital, a big hospital here in Montreal. Oh, really? Yeah, called the Royal Victoria Hospital. Mm-hmm. And what's interesting about that is I was finishing up my finals in high school and the time of the test conflicted with my training <laughs> at the hospital. So, so I mean, I had to write an exam at eight o'clock in the morning and I had to be at the hospital at seven o'clock to start my shift. Oh, no. And so, my goodness, how do we take care of that? I called the hospital. I asked them if they can do anything. They said, uh-uh, you know, get your ass over here. And uh, so what happened? So here's what happened. The training back then was basically three days of being on a ward with an orderly. I was an orderly. I was a patient attendant. Okay, so, yeah, yeah. so the tr- all, the only training that they had back then was spend three days with this guy on the floor and then you're fine. So the guy that I was spending that I was supposed to spend time with, my father knew and he told him, look, he's going to be a little bit late. And he was fine with that. And that's how we did it. Okay. Well, that, that worked out. Yeah. There wasn't any supervision. But it's quite interesting that I was in my my, my whites at school writing exam. And I say my whites, my hospital whites. Yeah, yeah. Writing exam, then rushing over to the hospital. So things were a little hectic, obviously. So how long were you in orderly for? 
I was an orderly part-time for 10 years. Wow, okay. And so part-time, and uh, when did you start doing something else in the other part of your time? In my early 20s, when I finished school, university, that's when I started uh, my career in the banking sector. Okay, so you're, you're orderly part-time, just right out of high school, and then you went right into university, or you just worked part-time and then decided you wanted to go? I went straight into university. Back then, I mean, we we had the choice, right? But nobody did it. Nobody talked about that. It was it was almost an unwritten law that says high school here in Quebec it's CGEP. Yeah, yeah CGEP, yeah. And then three years of university, and that's just how it is. Nobody even questioned it or said, you know, I'll, I'll take a year off to travel. Those things weren't happening back then. That is kind of how a lot of people view it, and and uh, I think. The whole, uh, you know, taking a, a year off or entrepreneurial uh, route or the trades route is becoming hopefully a little more normalized these days. But uh, you're right. That was the track for a long time in, in a lot of people's minds. That's right. But, but you know, the negative about that is, you know, at 16 or 17 years old, they're asking you, what do you want to do with your life? Yeah. How like, you know? the hell am I supposed to know? Yeah, I don't think I don't think, you know. So what did you what did you end up uh, deciding to start with? I'll tell you what, I have, a, I have a passion for sciences as well, okay? Okay, okay. And so my goal originally was to become a pharmacist. Nice, my wife is a pharmacist. Oh, really, eh? Yeah, yeah, she's in med, right. med school now, but uh, okay. she's a pharmacist okay. and decided to go to med school, so. So that's, that's interesting, and I mean, in the medical field, so she's not, she's not going to be unfamiliar with anything, that's No, sure. the pharmacy uh, degree kind of gives her a little bit of a leg up, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so here's here's what happened with me. Um, so I, I, I I'm in I'm in the science program at, at McGill University. It, it was biochemistry. I had to apply to go to a French university. I didn't consider about going anywhere else in Canada, but I, the the pharmacy program here in Quebec is only given in French. Okay. And my my French wasn't that great, so I didn't pass the entry exam. Oh wow. In French, so I decided, you know what? Let me take a a semester or two or three in biochemistry. I was always interested in that. And then I might go somewhere else to do my pharmacy. But here's what happens. And this is interesting, Bo. October 19th, 1987 comes around. Yes. Oh, okay. I, I know I'm the in, significance of, of there, that. There you go. There you go. And uh, maybe you can first, tell everybody. <laughs> I, I shall. I'm in my first year of university in biochemistry. And what happened then is the stock market crashed. Mm-hmm. And this is this was, you know, the markets around the world went down by about 20%. This is uh, Black Friday, right? The, ori- that's, that's the original uh, term Black Friday before. Actually, they... it was Black Monday. Black Monday. Okay, yeah. there we go. Perfect. Yeah. Friday had gone down quite a bit, but Monday was the killer. Monday was the, oh, okay. That's wow. right. So obviously it was all over the news. And, and what I did is, and, and, you know, stepping back one second, when going through high school and, and university or starting university, I didn't think about money. I mean, I was making it, whatever, but I think it's... It never dawned on me to do a career out of it. I always wanted to do something in the medical field. Mm-hmm. Why? Because my parents said, go in the medical field. But what happened in, in, in 87, again in October, when the markets fell, the next day I skipped my classes and I went to the stock exchange to go see what the, what the, what the, you know, what's going on. Yeah, why is this such a big deal? Yeah, what's all the, yeah, what's all the hype about? What happened? So, so I fell in love with it. Hmm. And, and the next semester I switched all my classes 
and I started taking e-commerce courses. Okay, so you're you're partway through this biochem. Uh, you said biochemistry. I, yeah, I had just started. Like, it was my first semester. Okay, okay. So, so I really like that. There's just this world event. Nothing else was pointing you in any direction. It, the science was almost uh, like a default because you right. you were interested in it. But this really drew you over to the uh, investment or uh, business side. That's right. I still have a passion for for the sciences, natural sciences and physics and chemistry and mm -hmm. stuff like that. But I was really, I fell in love with the, the whole industry would have happened. <laughs> so what did you, you end up uh, finishing with a degree then in, uh, in commerce? Yeah, in finance. Okay. So uh, I got my undergrad and then, then I went to work. And to become a financial planner, I will. I wasn't a financial planner back then, but to get into the industry, you have to take a couple of courses again. So I went and took my courses and I started my career in, in the banking sector in, in the early 90s. So did you get a job at a bank and then take the courses like while you were there? Yeah. My first job was a teller. Okay. A part-time part teller for 20 hours a week or so. And I took my courses to become to become a stockbroker. Okay, okay. Once that, once that was done, I mean, I spent a couple of years uh, as a teller. And then about two years later, after I finished my courses, I, I went to work as a stockbroker. And was that for a bank as well? That's Well, yeah. Most brokerages, those are the days that most brokerages were owned by banks, meaning yes. that's when they started purchasing independent brokerages. Oh, okay. So I was working for one of the major one of the major banks as a stockbroker. And then how long uh, did you stay or did you stay with that bank or did you go to other banks? I know I stay, I, my teller job was one, a certain bank. And then as a broker, I went to another bank because I, I had heard and I had somebody who worked in that, in that firm. So I, I went there and I, I was a broker for three years, three years. Okay. That's right. And you have a podcast confessions of an ex banker. Nice. So, so I, there's already a spoiler that you didn't stay. <laughs> Did you, it was after the three years you, you then went out on your own. That no, uh, what, here's, here's the, here's the deal. And I'll try to wrap this as, as quickly as I can, because Good. it's somewhat of a long story, but here's how it starts. When I was a broker, I got turned off my second year because I had clients who were elderly. I got along with elderly people, and I, that's from the experience that I had from the hospital. Oh yeah, most, of course. Most, uh, the average age, yeah, the the average age is seventy years old. So I, in a hospital, is seventy years old. So I, I had a lot of experience, and I figured that's a good market to go and work with. And I enjoyed their stories and whatever. And and the brokerage firm at one point almost forced me to sell a certain stock that they underwrote. So they were the the brokerage firm took a company, they brought them public, and we had to sell the shares. Mm. So I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable with that, and I didn't sell any. And I was told, uh, -uh you're going to have to do this. And it was unfortunate. These things were happening back then. They don't happen now. And why, why didn't you like it? Why didn't you like the product, other than the fact that they owned it and bought it? That type of stock wasn't appropriate for the kinds of clients that I had. It was an oil and gas startup, let's say. So and very risky. Very risky, very volatile, and uh, you know, telling you what happened to that stock might be for another podcast. Sure. But let's just say that it turned me off. Where I wasn't able, I felt like I was, my hands were tied, and I wasn't able to advise clients or or, or invest your money the way I think it should be invested. Yeah. So that hurt. That hurt. So, I, so I went. That's that's why I spent three years there. So I went to work at a bank in the front lines as a financial planner, and okay. back. That's when banks were, you know, were introducing the financial planner post. So in the mid-90s, I was a financial planner for a bank. What happened there is 
I was recommending products which were very, very cheap, and they're called index funds. You may have heard, okay, or exchange-traded funds is what the term is used these days, but index funds. And they told me after five years, they told me, uh-uh, stop selling these things. Not enough fees on them. Sell our other products. Index funds should be for do-it-yourselfers. So that turned me off. And I went so to you, another bank. Sorry to interrupt. You yeah. made the decision to sell index funds because you thought they were you know, reasonably priced products and that they fit the profile of your clients. Exactly. But uh, at a certain point, the bank stepped in and said, oh, uh, you know what? We're not doing that anymore or this isn't what we want you to do. That's exactly right. And um, they became – banks became – sales machines mm-hmm. in, the, in the 90s and they became product oriented in the late 90s going into the year 2000 they became product oriented so they started paying people based on the product that they were selling mm. and that wasn't that wasn't right as far as i'm concerned again that's not giving unbiased advice okay that's this is still what's, what's going on in banks so i moved to another bank and i was able to do my gig again for another five years until they told me uh-uh no more. So I've been doing index funds and these types of investments for over 20 years. Yeah. That's my game. Yeah. And I think that's the best, that's the best that I can do for clients. So I moved there and I went to a private, the private bank of that bank that I was working at. Okay. There's a private banking division for million dollar clients. So yeah, private yeah. Like wealth management. Uh, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so I didn't have the issue of mutual funds there. And then after seven years, I thought I can do this on my own and give people the same type of service, you know, have people around me that, that know taxes and, and, and estate planning and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, have the, I, an expert uh, circle. Exactly. Uh, so, and I would, I would be able to do this on my own. That's what I did three years ago. Okay, so three years ago. So you were a banker for a long time. Yes, I was. From, in a bank, I guess, yeah. Yeah, from the early 90s until 2015. Wow, and so you tried to uh, work outside the box. You tried to think differently. And yep. they just kept uh, stomping on you. They were hammering away, um, saying, uh, "You know, let's let's get some more revenue coming in." And when you're in a position where they're saying, "You know, you have an objective to sell GICs and, and which are guaranteed investments, and an objective, an annual objective to sell mutual funds," and when you're at 150% of your GICs, for example. And your boss is breathing down your your back because you're at seventy percent in mutual funds. Well, you might be tempted, you know, the next client that comes in to sell mutual funds, which is not right. So there's a potential conflict of interest, which is something that I've been fighting for, you know, for more than twenty years. No, absolutely, and and it's it's a good fight to fight. I mean, the, there is a a way of you know selling products that you bought say like you know a bank can do this but the, the i think the way that they went wrong and, and you can uh, agree or disagree is that they just tried to 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 sell them to the blanket market as opposed to looking at the client and saying hey you know we have this giant portfolio of things this is right for you this is right for you and then maybe we would still trust them if they did that Correct. And, and if they were able to give an objective opinion, okay, then, you know, things would be better. That's for sure. I don't like the idea of an advisor being paid based on the product that they sell. That's right. It's ridiculous. It's horrible. It's used car salesman type of thing. Yes. If they're, if they're peddling a specific, the specific product, right? Like, you know, if, uh, what, what's your opinion? And, and, uh, cause this is what 
this is sort of my model is like I'm a coach, right? A personal finance coach. And I've, I've been asking people this a lot lately because I'm, I'm trying to avoid conflict of interest. I mean, sorry, everybody has conflict of interest. I'm trying to avoid any sort of uh, negative connotations there is uh, if, you know, you know, like, say, a robo-advisor is a really good option for someone yep. and yep. You, you refer them to that robo-advisor and then the robo-advisor gives you a referral fee. Is there is there is that always negative or is there a, a positive way to do that? You know, that's that's a good question. And for people that are or for advisors that are choosing ETFs, exchange traded funds, that's the best route to go. Now, is it proper that that you know there's a referral fee? Oh, I've never I've never thought about that. But I when when I get paid, I get paid for the client from the client for doing a financial plan. Mm. And yes. There's a referral fee from a from from a, a robo advisor. You know what? I've never I've never really I've never put into anything into that. Like maybe there shouldn't be. Well, On so, the other hand, so you're, you're saying you would like this is a, a deal that you might have with a robo advisor as well, right? That's that's correct. Yeah, that's because right. they they have programs for this reason, and the the reason I bring it up this way is because I think well, first of all, you know, we can charge less to, to to people directly if the you know advisor is paying us referral fees. However, uh, you know, to your point of of conflict of interest, if that's the one that we're peddling all the time and we're saying you have to have this you know, no matter what, I think that's maybe where we get into trouble. You know what? I agree, and there are choices, and I and I, right. I, and I use and I use multiple robo advisors. That's right. We don't get a referral fee from the robo advisor. The client pays us for managing their assets. Oh, so yeah, so you're getting a, a assets under management fee. That's and, correct. And in my, but it's coming, but yeah. it's coming from the client. So the the robo advisor charges the client. Let's say, let's say there's a a client with with no advisor. Okay. Yeah. The robo advisor will charge a fee to the client. Okay. Yes. Um, if the client is attached with an advisor and they go to the same robo advisor, the fee that they charge the client is less. Yes. And the client themselves are paying us, the financial planner, money to manage their, their assets. That's so it's right. not the robo-advisor directly referring money to us. So there is no conflict of interest. And it's, it's interesting that you, you mentioned this because it's got me thinking now. And so there isn't a conflict of interest that's to say, go to this guy or go to that guy. I mean, go to one robo-advisor versus another. What I see is that for clients that have a substantial amount of wealth, there's one robo-advisor which is better. For clients that have more modest uh, savings, another advisor is better. Yeah, that's a good point. And, and without mentioning them, I agree with you, uh, and I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> there, there you go, right. Specifically talking about which ones we're talking about. Wink, uh, wink. Uh, yeah, but yeah, exactly. But you, can, <laughs> but if you know, if you're uh, what if you're one of John's clients or one of mine, you can come and ask us <laughs> directly. When when you take and when I think of this and I say it, I sort of shiver. When you take a client's the, the client's best interest, okay, you can't go wrong. Yeah, business is gonna follow. Take everybody, look at every individual situation and say, what's the best for this client or this family? If you do that, you can't go wrong. Is it karma? Is Whatever it is, if you can truly put that type of mentality into what you're doing, you can't go wrong. Yeah, that's. Uh, I, I think that's good. And, and I think 
we probably wouldn't even be having this conversation about sales commissions versus referrals versus assets under management versus uh, you know flat fees if everyone just did this and looked out for, for the client's best interest because then they would be like, yeah, you're looking for my best interest? I want you to get paid. And whatever way is best for you to get paid, depending on the structure or whatever product we're talking about or whatever service, right. then they'd be fine with it and, and they would know it's not at their expense. Right. And, 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 and this is one reason why Confessions of an Ex-Banker was born, okay? I literally spill my guts out and I'm saying it the way it is. And, um, you know, and so people find it interesting. I should start doing them again. I stopped last year, but anyhow. Yeah, I noticed so you, uh, you did 26 episodes. Uh, now, this is probably actually, uh, I think you started in late 2016. Yeah, that's or right. Mid, or or was mid? it early 2016? No, I think mid 2016. Yeah, and then you went to, uh, to sort of, it, it seems like yeah. it ended right after our, the quote unquote RRSP season. That's right. That's right. Life became hectic because I do have a day job, that's right? right. <laughs> and, and you know how, you know, and I'm a complete amateur when it comes to podcasting and stuff like that, right? So well, no took, one would know that. You, you, it sounds very professional to me. That's great to hear. But, but it, as you know, it takes a long time. So I, I, I just got so busy and the podcast became sort of secondary, but I've had a lot of people telling me, you know, start doing them again. So I'm going to find time to do them again. Yeah, it's great because, you know, just to fill everybody in. So confessions of an ex-banker, they're usually about, what, 15, 20 minutes, uh, maybe right. even, even less, depending on how much you have to say in, yeah. a, in a week. And uh, it's just... It's uh, it's John talking about stuff that he's learned over the the, the years of being a banker that uh, you need to look out for or that will help you or the better way to do it or things that bankers are trying to pull the wool over your eyes, uh, that kind of thing. And uh, you had a four-part series, uh, I think, on RSPs. That's right. <laughs> what I can say about that is I got comments or people contacted me and they're saying, what do you mean don't buy RSPs? Everybody buys RSPs. I'm saying for the majority of people out there, RSPs make sense. For many people, it doesn't. Mm. But you'll never hear that from the industry because they want to sell RSPs. Can you give us an example then of, of when it wouldn't make sense uh, for someone to have an RSP? Yeah. So I'm, I'm with a client and we're, we're doing financial planning, okay? And when I say doing financial planning, I work up a plan. Yeah, an actual plan. That's right. <laughs> Go figure, right? Yeah, uh, imagine. Imagine, imagine that. Uh, but the, what the plan does, and many people think a financial plan is a retirement plan. It's a lot more than that because we also take a look at the tax planning situation of the client. And what I was able to show clients is with the software that I use, I'm able to show them whether it's worth buying an RSP or not. And here's a scenario. If somebody has a certain amount of money, a decent amount of money in RSPs, but they've accumulated other wealth as well, okay, mm. and – and um, you know, there's chances that they're not going to use all of their wealth in their in their lifetime. Well, putting an RSP might make them be in a higher tax bracket when, at the age of seventy, they have to pull out their RSPs. Mm-hmm. So at the age of seventy, you're forced to take out money from your RSPs. To keep the terms simple, let's just call it that. Okay, they're called RIFs then, but. The bottom line is at 71, you have to start taking out and the government's going to you know, tax you. So I've had situations where clients w- would be at a higher tax bracket because they'll be earning more money when they turn 70 than when they were working because they're pulling out you know, RSPs. So that's a situation where you're saying you're not getting the benefit. You're getting a lower tax break now and you're going to be paying higher taxes 
at 70 and over. It's really kind of crazy, right? I actually, uh, one of my first blogs that I wrote uh, was uh, about this. Um, I think I saw Malcolm Hamilton um, at a Money Sense conference, mm -hmm. and he was talking about, you know, it's not a bad thing, but he over over contributed, right? Or over saved, right? Correct. Correct. And th there was some mention of, of, th of this, like I'm paying more taxes in retirement than I ever did because I have four. So, so you're saying they have to take out, let's say it's like, you know, six to 9% or whatever it is, yeah. depending on how old they are, it, it right. grows over, over time. And, and, and uh, then they have to take this money out, which means uh, probably cashing out uh, mutual funds or stocks and, and bonds, whatever they may be holding in the RSP accounts. They have to pay the taxes on that. And uh, then if they don't need it, they just put it back in their bank account, right? That's right. That's right. And, and, and they have other sources of money that they can use to live. Maybe, you know, it could even be the revenues that they're getting from their pension or from yeah. dividends. You know, whatever they have the revenue, but the government forces them into a lifetime of a higher tax bracket. So let me make this clear. It makes sense for many employees, okay, who we can sort of calculate and see if they're going to be in a lower tax bracket when they retire. And most people are, okay, so it's not for everybody. But I've seen so many cases where they've been mismanaged by, 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 by people telling them to take RSPs. And that's a great thing about, you know, you have financial planning software, you know, there's uh, uh, if you uh, use, say, PlansWell, they have free financial planning engine, which does have this stuff, takes this stuff into consideration as well. If you ever wonder how do they know wherever to put it in RRSP account or TFSA or, or to put it in non-registered, well, there's some sophisticated calculations in all this software. It's not just, uh, oh, you have uh, 100 bucks uh, left uh, after your expenses. Oh, it goes into the uh, RSP. Now, there's some really forward projections involved there. To, That's correct. To help and, you. Yeah, and this, you may, the key word is help. A financial planning software cannot um, cannot eliminate or should not be cannot replace a financial planner. No, not on its own. Yeah, because there's life situations that you need to talk about as well. Yes. And and what what I'll say so it's there's a personal situation. There's a psychological angle to things. There's a you know I want to leave money to somebody else in the future. How do I go ahead and structure all these things? So there's a lot more, but the, definitely the financial planning software helps us illustrate what we expect to happen. And you know what? Whatever we expect to happen is not going to happen, Bo. No. Okay? That's 100%. Yeah, that's but right. every year, what you need to do is every year as things change, whether it's your life with some sort of life event or the markets change or interest rates change or whatever, every year, if you make some minor adjustments, you'll get to your goals. Yeah, and that's where we, that's where the banks had have failed in the past. Where even if they did, if you had enough money to get a financial plan from them, it's just sort of a set it and forget it uh, deal. Yes, you're exactly right, and you know why. And I think I mentioned that in my podcast as well. It's because if the client, if the if the banker or the planner or whatever brings in the money that you have from other institutions. Their job is done mm. and they're not going to get compensated for reviewing a portfolio or, or anything like that. All they're interested in is bringing money because they have these objectives that they have to and that's how they get paid. So that's the unfortunate part also. But as far as I'm concerned, the reviewing of the financial plan is the most important aspect. Yeah, it it really is, isn't it? And and the, and like you said, the the objectives and goals, everyone's situation is completely 
different and it changes like every every year or you even say uh, uh, six months every six months that's right and, and it's it changes like from a personal point of view you might have children you might be saying man i'm really getting tired of my job well you know so you know you may have come into an inheritance who knows the markets may have the, everything comes in in life things come in from left field you never know what's happening so you have to adapt your strategy and your plan based on the situation that you will be at that point of time and uh maybe it's not the majority but i i like to think the majority of, of people who have a say a cfp designation or uh, people who are in a coaching position like me i have uh, this thing called the registered retirement consultant designation we're in this for the long run we're not right. try the the goal here isn't to bring money in uh, the goal is to uh, to get good clients who uh, you want to have a relationship with um, for their entire life if if that's possible like you know right. who depending on how long everybody uh, lives maybe over time their the their their assets will grow and if you have a fee based on asset management or uh, annually then you're getting income as you go but it's not about like you know, give me a whale with 500 grand, we'll get the commissions off the bat and then uh, uh, go on to the next one. Right, right, which is unfortunate. And, and that's what happens when you get paid based on volume and based on product, you know. Mm -hmm. I just feel like I, I hope that we're on kind of an upswing in terms of uh, people trusting people out there because it really it just comes down to trust. You know, no matter, like I've spoken to a bunch of different people on the podcast and, and off, and everybody has different things that they offer, right? right? You may or may not, sorry, I don't even know, do you actually sell, uh, do you, you don't sell any financial products, right? No, well, I, you know what, when I'm recommending, I don't sell any financial products myself. Yeah. When I recommend portfolios, I suggest to clients, you know, which ETF portfolio or ETFs to buy. Yes. So I'm, I am suggesting a product, but it's not really a managed product. It's the markets. Yeah, well, I'm, you're also licensed to do that, right? That's correct. That's um, correct. You know, so, some CFPs, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, are not uh, licensed. That's right. Uh, to to advise, I'm not licensed. Uh, you know, I can I can do a plan. I can especially do a preliminary plan and then send you to to people who are more expert. Um, if you want a comprehensive, a really comprehensive one with estate and tax and all that stuff, I would probably send them to CFP like you. Right. Um, but I can deal with the simple stuff, especially anything that follows the, the RRC retirement uh, steps, right? Right. Um, yep. But like you said, a retirement plan is not a, the same as a financial plan. Um, it's, uh, it's a malleable document. But uh, some people do sell investments, and they are planners, just as long as you trust them. And they're, they're uh, transparent and, and straightforward with you about what's happening and who's getting paid for what. I don't think you need to be as scared as maybe in the past. Would you agree? You're, you're exactly right. As long as the planner is transparent, mm. meaning I, if, if somebody is really clicking with their planner, okay, and they're paying a certain amount of fee, which is more expensive than what they can get, I suggest they stay with the planner if everything is transparent. Yeah. If the client feels they're getting value. That's right. That's all there is to it. But what kills me the most is that there is no transparency. The same thing goes with bank fees. Uh, I, I've spoken to some people and I, I even post, uh, uh, posted a couple of questions on Quora. Like, why do you pay bank fees uh, when you have the option to not? 
And a lot of them will cite uh, loyalty and uh, wanting to go into the branch and right. et cetera. And, and as long as they're fully aware, like you can pay for whatever you like. You, you, know, you can buy more expensive food. You go to Whole Foods and shop because um, that's your choice. You don't have to go to No Frills. The, you know, the, these are the choices that we, we make in our lives. I, and I want this, and I, I, I feel like you do too, just want people to be aware. That's that's correct. And and like I said, what might be valuable for me might not be valuable for you. But just be aware, like you're saying. And and, and if, if a planner is offering, they feel like they're offering serious value, they shouldn't hide or they shouldn't be scared to tell that's what right. you're yeah. charging. Be proud of what you're charging. It's because you're offering more value. If you think you're offering more value than what the client is paying, then you're doing a great job. Right. And, and, uh, and on the opposite end, I'm the connector, I'm the coach, I'm pushing them in the right, in the right place. I don't want to charge them that much. And uh, so that, you know, we only uh, meet a couple of times a year uh, so that they can save money and they can move on with their lives. Because typically someone who comes to me is really loathing doing any of this stuff. And what I see also is there, there are some people that are able to manage their investments on their own. Yeah. And, and, if, and they come to me for a financial plan, and that's fine too. Um, whatever you think is – as long as people have facts about, about how people get paid or about financial products, what are the ups and downs, you know, as long as you have – if you're armed with all the facts, then, then you know, that's the best position to be in to make the proper decisions for yourself. Yeah, so and that's you know that's why I'm doing this podcast. That's why you you, uh, you did yours, and I hope you do another season. It's just nice. There's like great uh, little bits of information, like you know, almost bite sized, uh, ten, fifteen, twenty minute uh, uh, pieces, right? And uh, you know, it, you can hear that it comes from your experience. So uh, I'm glad that you did that. And and uh, the power of uh, of social media is what brought us uh, brought us together. I that's commented right. on something. And then you, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I think I like your page or something. And then. Uh, that's exactly what happened. You have, that's, on, on, that's right. On one of the social media forums, let's say. It's exactly what happened. And you said, that, you know, thanks for liking. And then I checked yeah. out your, your podcast and your, and your site. And uh, I like your story. And, and, and you're on the podcast now. And I'm glad you came on. Thanks you bet for, it was uh, a pleasure. So where where do people uh, where do people find out more about uh, about John Callos? Well, you, you can obviously email me, but I, I'm I'm with an independent firm called Iron Shield Financial Planning. Okay. Just Iron I R O N and Shield one word Financial Planning. Ca. That's where you'll find my biography. I'll put the link in the in the show notes for sure. That sounds great. That sounds great. And and you know, that's the obviously that's the best way to communicate these days. And. I think if anybody has any questions or uh, what I, what I'd like always doing is I don't charge for the first couple of meetings because sure. I like to get to know the client and the client needs to kick my tires. Exactly. To find out if I'm the right person for them and I need to find out if I can help them. So, and it is, it is, is it only people in, in Quebec or anybody in Canada? No, across Canada. Across Canada. And you do in-person meetings or is it online? In person in Quebec. <laughs> All right. But if it's from BC, uh, you know what, Bo? With, <laughs> with technology these days, all right, I can easily do financial planning for anybody uh, in front of a computer. On yeah. the other hand, it's not as personal, right? You want to see the person, you want to see the interaction. So, you know, the full experience is not there. But if someone, you know, is convinced that, you know, they found a planner online and they're convinced that this planner will have their best, you know, best uh, intentions. 
then you know go for it. I can, I can show a financial plan using my screen. I can control a client screen. It's amazing. Yeah, the share the screen sharing is the the best sort of thing that's happened to to this business because it, it does add all of the the things that you're missing when you don't have an in person, but. Like you said, somebody could listen to this and just think, you know what, I, I like John's style. I want to work with him, and uh, I don't care that I live in, uh, in Yellowknife. I want you know, John to do my plan. And so but, it's good that you're open to that. You bet. All right. Okay, well, uh, hopefully we'll uh, get to – we actually haven't met in person, but hopefully we'll get to meet uh, uh, sometime in the future. And uh, thanks for coming on the show. It's my pleasure, Bo. If you're ever in Montreal, obviously you're going to look me up and I'll take you to the best souvlaki places in Montreal. Sounds fantastic. <laughs> All right. All right. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. It would mean a lot to me and it only takes a few seconds. For the show notes and any links from the episode, head over to my website, investwisely.ca. And while you're there, please feel free to send me a message on my contact page. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of The Personal Finance Show. I'll be back next week with Hamza Khan, multi-award winning marketer, accomplished entrepreneur, dynamic keynote speaker, and author of the new book, The Burnout Gamble.